Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And if it's your first time here, well, where have you been? We are dedicated to military history from Napoleonic battles to Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11. Now... Speaking of 9-11, this week marks the 20th anniversary of the start of the war in Afghanistan. Those first strikes on October 7th, 2001, less than a month after the attacks of 9-11. And of course, we had a week dedicated to understanding the history and the evolution of terrorist attacks by hijacking terrorist attacks on New York and those first-hand accounts of what it was like on that day in New York City. But this week, we're going to look at the war in Afghanistan from a slightly different perspective. There's been lots of reports on the war recently, as the arguably botched withdrawal from the country has taken place over the last couple of months. And so what I wanted to do was look at a history of the conflict itself, by looking at a weapon that defined that conflict, and that is the IED. Now, we've got Patrick Bury on the podcast, my good friend Paddy Bury, and he served as a captain with the Royal Irish in Sangin, which was one of the most heavily affected places by the IED, the improvised explosive device. And in Paddy's own words in his book, Call Sign Hades, he says there are many ways to die in Sangin. Assassinations, shoot and scoots from men on motorbikes, ambushes and bullets and RPGs, mortars and SPGs, rockets, the usual. But it is the IED that frightens us. The hidden traps of old shells and wires that change our soldiers' love for the ground. This ground we've been taught to worship. Every curve, every fold, every crevice. This ground that can save us from all other deaths. In essence, the IED teaches any infantryman not to trust the ground they walk on. And so this is Paddy's account of his experience in Afghanistan. Hi, 
Hi Paddy, welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks James. And yourself? I am good, yes. It is great to have you back on. The last time you were on here, you were talking about Nazi megastructures. In fact, one of our most popular episodes, and that's because you were one of the presenters on that hit National Geographic show. But you had a whole career before you were a successful TV presenter and an academic associate professor in security at the University of Bath. You were in the military. So tell us a little bit about your career, your past life. Well, yeah, thanks for filling me such full of uh, hot air there. I might take off like a balloon. But no, it's very good of you. Nice to be back, James. Thanks for having us back on. I suppose the reason I was on Nazi Megastructures was because I had military experience and quite unusually, some might say, For an Irish man, I served in the British Army in the Royal Irish Regiment, which is an infantry regiment, for five years as an officer and finished as a captain. And I left just at the end of 2009, so I'm out a long time at this stage. Yes, absolutely. But you have that knowledge of a period in the war in Afghanistan, which I really want to drill down into today. And that's a period where the IEDs really started to spread and cause a major issue to the Brits, the Americans and the Allies. In fact, I think if I've got my stats right, between 2009 and 2010, IEDs contributed to 60% of Allied casualties during that period. So this was no small impact by a single kind of weapon. But maybe start by explaining to us what the IED is, what it was. Well, I'm sure as you well know, the IED is an improvised explosive device. And in that broad definition, it can be anything really that explodes and is improvised. So that can vary from a jerry can full of fertilizer and accelerant and an initiator to a 155 millimeter leftover shell which is got a new charge on it and has exploded you know from very complex different kinds of devices which we can talk about which are designed to take out ied disposal teams so the experts that come and try to defuse them to the most basic kind of device which is often done by a wire or sometimes a pressure plate they really really vary there's a huge amount of innovation and adaptation involved which is something that we saw during our tour of Sangin in Afghanistan in 2008 and you know the history goes back as long as explosives go back really and booby traps and I'm not you know 100% expert on that history but what I do know is that we saw from the second world war onwards especially in conflicts from post world war two and some of those increasingly use of the IED whether it was called by a different name whether it was called a mine but it essentially was an IED in Vietnam to what we saw then you know under the IRA in Northern Ireland and that being really quite refined and some real expert bomb makers developing there over the course of the troubles and it had a long enough time to sort of test and adapt and of course then this sort of battle of wits which always emerges is the measure you know somebody comes up with a change in the tactic or the method of the IED and then the forces that are dealing with them change their countermeasures and this is going on backwards and forwards each one watching very carefully what the other is doing because one of the interesting things about the IED is you can literally watch the IED maker, yeah, or the team is later, can watch what their enemy are doing in real time, how they deal with it, and then learn and come back and, oh, that doesn't work, try this, that doesn't work, try this. So, yeah, long history to get us to the point in Afghanistan in 2008 where we're faced with a lot of them. And I suppose the interesting thing about that is that, you know, Afghanistan in that context was sort of 
seen as much more when I was go. you know, Iraq was on and there was a lot of IEDs over there. And it was killing a lot of, especially 2005, it was killing a lot of British soldiers. And, you know, it's no secret there was Iranian help for that, you know, especially given them passive infrared initiators, you know, so very hard to detect at the time. And Afghanistan was still more in this sort of manoeuvre infantry war, you know, small arms and mortars, not face-to-face clashes, but almost face-to-face clashes, you know, sort of combat battlefield in that sort of way, an outpost being attacked by full frontal assault by the Taliban etc and one interesting story there is you know the, the, the paras I suppose were in Sangin a couple of years before we were I was there actually attached to the paras as well but and they, they had a name for one of the alleyways which ran onto our base and it was called Pipe Range and it was because the Taliban used to attack down that road at night and they didn't realise that the paratroopers had night vision goggles and so it became similar to a pipe range in a pipe range if your listeners think about a bowling alley which has the buffers in the thing so you can't miss that's what a pipe range is you can't really miss so it became known as pipe range and that was important for the Taliban because that summer their big takeaway I think started to be in the summer after as well when the Royal Anglians were in the area they started to realise that this doesn't really work if we get into a punch up with these guys they've got so much firepower they can bring in so much aircraft and bombs and they've got so many assets that way that like we can't win especially the AH-64 attack Apache helicopter so what was interesting in the start of our tour because the fighting season lasts from sort of once they've harvested the poppy crop and around May yeah and then they go right we've got our income in and we're that all that goes into the narco factories where they start producing heroin and now we're ready to fight you know and literally you'd you'd see sometimes you'd interdict like bags of new guns you know cellophane absolutely brand new guns coming in on the network as the drugs go out the other way yeah but we listened on the ICOM, you have these chat devices and, and we were able to listen on them and listen to the Taliban commander give his sort of pep talk for the whole campaign. And one of the things he said is we're going to switch to IEDs now. He didn't say, listen, we got a spanking gun and the other way, he just said this is what we're going to do. And so our tour kind of, we witnessed this increase. It was a 300% increase of IEDs during our tour from not that many, I suppose, you know, the odd couple at the start of the tour to them being absolutely everywhere, you know, just a beacon us everywhere by the end of the tour to the point where it was like walking through essentially like a minefield, you know, without any idea of where the minefield was exactly, but a belt around the base. But as an infantryman, you are, are trained to manoeuvre quickly, to trust the ground you walk on, to be able to pivot when needed. You know, this is something which goes through step by step of your training. If there wasn't that IED threat in Sangin, or at least not as much before you went there, then I'm assuming that you didn't have many briefings on how to deal with the IEDs before you went there. So did any of your training prepare you for this, or were you purely learning on the job about what is, in essence, an entirely new form of warfare for you and your troops? Well, look, the British Army has a lot of experience of IEDs from Northern Ireland. So, like, this wasn't going to be new to them. But the assessment at the time was that the IED makers' skills in Afghanistan was rudimentary, yeah? And so we started to go bolt-on training. So as you prepare for deployment, you know, I completely agree. Like, our, our sort of infantry special-to-arm training was, like, all about manoeuvre, you know, fire manoeuvre, you know, getting rounds down the range, moving quickly, taking things, using initiative, etc. And it taught us to love the ground as well because that gives you cover, you know? So you've always, like, infantrymen love the ground <laughs> because they're, like, they're looking at it the whole time, right, what happens if this something goes down, where do I go and all this 
and suddenly the ID comes between you and that you know it's, it's like the ground has almost betrayed you because you have to second guess yourself and all that training goes and you're, you get this bolt on training which is for us at that time because we were kind of at the cusp of this wave that was going to hit us in hindsight the training was a little bit rudimentary in fairness in one way and I can you know and in the other way it was brilliant and I, I can elucidate on this a bit when we got to like Bastion which is the main base forward operating sort of rear area where you're going to be moved on to the front line and you spend this week or so training and they brought us in okay this is what an IED will look like this is how you do your drills to counter it and it was all like oh there's a pile of stones here which indicates that there's an IED like it was serious I suppose at the time because some people were leaving the Taliban have to leave markers for the locals otherwise the locals would blow themselves up and that's not going to do the Taliban much good so there are always there's this secret language in Afghanistan that was written into the landscape and if you had your wits about you and you knew what was going on you knew the area you could read it sometimes it was just notches in a tree sometimes it was notches in a wall sometimes it was a plastic bag stuck in a tree yeah but there was usually a sign there that there was something so you had to learn that language quickly and read it on the job in high pressure situations 100% and it was very varied and you just were looking for the absence of the normal and the presence of the abnormal that's what you were really looking for so that was why we were unprepared but the way that we were prepared was amazing which we got managed to get a section of our guys which is eight guys who went and did a, a special royal engineer search course and they came back and they were like they were tooled up they knew their stuff and they knew how to do it. and these guys basically saved our lives and they're the guys who were out there on the point men of that section you know who would be when we're in a high threat area you try to rotate your section so you give them rest but like these guys in a high threat area they were just such lifesavers and they were so more aware of what to look for than we were and they would be the ones who would kind of go in it. and that was a complete lifesaver you know so they're your point men but i can't imagine it's a quick process scanning analyzing finding an IED, disposing of it. How much does that slow a patrol down? It depends on the density, you can imagine. But what happened really was it changed in terms of like the amount of them. So we used to take over a compound and then, you know, after we were there a couple of days, you could go out, literally you'd go out with your scanner and outside the first place that you couldn't see and they knew you couldn't see because you can't keep overwatch on everything, you'd open the door and there'd be basically where your foot mat would be. There was like hidden, well hidden, you know, but we got it with the metal detectors. There was like a uh, 105 millimeter shell there ready to just take us. It's just as you literally first step out of the base. So once it got to that level and we were getting really quite fixed and they were everywhere. So hang on, they were literally laying IEDs on your doorstep. Yeah, 100, yeah. The first place, the way our sentry positions were, we couldn't see the other side of the door. There was an IED there. So that was one example, you know, but even, in, you know, we used to go on little clearance patrols around the base just to make sure they couldn't do this. We walked past and it was luckily one of my Lance corporals with a bit more experience. The guys had gone past and uh, he was, what's in that box? It was like an old telephone wiring box on a telegraph pole. Opened it up, there was a Soviet era anti-section popper mine, which is designed to blow up. It pops into the air till about head height and then expands and it's meant to take out like about six to eight people's basically decapitate them and we found one of those and at the time there was a kid you know on a roof trying to set it off probably it was was a radio controlled you know ic device so he's trying to hit it with a key fob or something like that and luckily it didn't and we're all still here today so that's what it got like though James and the net effect of that was you have to be so careful about this secret landscape and this migrating threat is that you're reduced to like 
150 meters in an hour you know in 43 degree heat with a helmet 15 20 kilos a kit it's unbelievable and there's a psychological thing about it too is because the locals for one reason or another some of them do most of them don't tell you where they are and the whole coin counterinsurgency mission was you're there to win them over but after a while you're like well screw you guys you know you won't tell us where these are and they're going to blow us up so it changes the psychological dimension too and if you're deployed in that area as well, then the locals know there's going to be more IEDs in the area, so there's more risk to their lives as well. So the IED drives a wedge between you and the local population, which I'm sure must have been a deliberate tactic by the Taliban. Yeah, whether it was deliberate or not, it certainly, I'd say, after a while they realised it was doing it, yeah. And the big one there is the suicide bomber. Because, like, what? how are you meant to get out and win over the population if you've got suicide bombers in the population? Like, it's completely impossible, you know? And so all you can do is keep people away and, and have this kind of, like, imaginary bubble as your section moves forward and your platoon moves forward. You're just like, out of the way, out of the way, out of the way, out of the, you know? Completely negates the idea of hearts and minds. And we had suicide bombers that it detonate against us as well. So, yeah, no, it's a fairly effective weapon. The countermeasures, you know, obviously a lot of these would be secret and classified. And I wouldn't feel happy talking about them, but... The British Army had a very well-respected system of countermeasures and they worked really well and, again, saved our bacon numerous, numerous times. Well, I know about one or two of them. So there was kind of like electronic jamming bubbles, right, where you were able to shut off the signal if one of these IEDs was being detonated by remote control. So if it was being detonated by a key fob or maybe a mobile phone signal, then you were able to create a kind of protective electronic bubble around yourselves moving forwards. But... Is this the reason why some IEDs were then taken from being dug into the ground or put into the walls and then taken and put into trees or, like you said, put onto telegraph poles? I mean, that is truly terrifying because that creates a ubiquitous threat. You don't know if the IED is above you, below you, all around you. It could be anywhere at any point at any time. It's a three-dimensional threat. Completely, yeah, yeah. And, you know, as I said, they're using kids. It's a three-dimensional threat at any time, any place, you know, and they're using kids to detonate them because they know, you know, because the kids are going to be less suspicious. So, like, that's sort of the level we're at, you know. And they're also, when we were there, you know, we had a small doctor's surgery, mainly for the troops and for people that were wounded there. But, you know, we had a father come in with his son's arms blown off and he had him making IEDs and then he wanted us to treat him and we did treat him, you know. He passed away, but... So there's that going on too. But yeah, that's the nature of it, you know? Like, it's 3D. And what you're talking about, this innovation was going on. So if you think about, like, at the start of our tour, we were facing fairly rudimentary IEDs in terms of most of them were, if I remember correctly, pressure plate or command wire. So the pressure plate is basically, you need often a piece of wood with a little bit of metal which is connected to another piece of wood with a bit of metal and when you step on it it goes down completes the circuit boom initiator device explodes now there's metal in that right so our metal detectors would find that you know hopefully hopefully as long as the metal detectors are switched on and you're doing your drills right you know i mean that by the guys with them obviously the metal detectors need to be switched on <laughs> but um that would be funny and then they had the command wire, which is basically like a wire which runs, and again, often to a battery, you touch the battery and it goes. And then they switched to what they thought was more complicated, which was RC, you know. But as you were talking about, luckily we had countermeasures that could help that. So the real innovation then came when they started to watch us and they were like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to offset it, you know, over our bubble. And so 
we'll have a command wire to an RC to a command wire and down to us. And, and this is what's going on. And you were trying to work, okay, so if they do that, then how can we patrol to catch the initiator? Yada, yada, yada. So then you change how you patrol. And we caught a lot of guys who were like, and kids often, standing there. They're like looking at one half of our call sign, you know, over there, thinking we're coming there. Okay, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. And then the next, suddenly our other section would just pile in on top of them and they'd run off most of the time because they're unarmed. So what can we do, you know? What can you do? What do you do? And I don't think that there is a clear or easy answer to this. They normally run. They normally scamper. Okay, if he stood there with the battery and the wire while you were there, there's a th- direct threat to life and you can kill him. But most of the time they've dropped it and then you go, is there a direct threat to life? No, so I can't. So very, very strict rules of engagement in that particular scenario. Yeah, and the interesting thing about conflict and especially with the British rules of engagement is like, when you go out there, you go, these are very strict and very clear rules of engagement, and they are. But what you realise is so much, because they're kind of aware of our rules of engagement, if I don't carry a weapon, I won't get this, you know. And so much, and the soldiers, especially under the commanders, are looking for that direction about when should I use force or not? What is the threat? It's in that grey area. You know, when it's black and white, it's quite easy. When it's in the grey area, that's where the real kind of leadership and direction and command is so important, you know, and getting the tone right. Especially in a counterinsurgency operation where if you get it wrong, the repercussions are big. And the British rules of engagement, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're different or were different to the American rules of engagement in Afghanistan, weren't they? Yeah, I'm not 100% to be able to talk about like other theatres, but I know when we served alongside the US Marines and the big difference was that the US forces could use lethal force to protect property and we couldn't. So that was the big difference. Obviously, if there's a threat to life, you could, immediate threat to life. That's a big difference. So you were able to engage with threat to life. They were able to engage with threat to property. How did that manifest itself operationally? Not massively. You wouldn't have noticed that massively. The Marines were really professional. So it never really did in that case. But I suppose like where you would have thought, and we didn't actually face this one, but where you would have thought it could have happened was like, if you're on a vehicle patrol, for example, you know, and, and your vehicle was sort of threatened, but you weren't in a riot situation, it would make quite a difference, I would have thought, potentially. Yeah, well... You're playing that down a little bit. I mean, it makes it makes a massive difference, doesn't it? Well, it does, it does. But funny enough, just the way, the nature of the conflict there, you know, property wasn't massively involved, I suppose. Yeah. Just the way it was, you know, funny enough. Although it was this big thing and you understood it going into it, because it is a gulf, like you say. On the other hand, it didn't massively come up because we were kind of on the same song sheet anyway, you know. One of the interesting thing about working with the Marines, so in 2008 in San Gui, or in Helmand, right, so you have this British task force Helmand, which is about, you know, oh, it was a brigade plus strength, I think, and it was probably like eight to 10,000 total troops of which combat troops, maybe, I don't know, 2,000, you know, not that many. And within that, because we got surprised by the speed of this threat migration and the amount of capacity that the IED factories that the Taliban were able to churn out, when we were there, there was only two IED disposal officers for the whole of Helmand. And each of those need a helicopter and they need a protection team. There was a shortage of helicopters. So the real thing was if you found an IED, you're like, oh, God. Now I'm stuck here with my call sign, the platoon, for up to 24 hours in Taliban-infested territory, putting overwatch on this IED until these guys come out and can deal with it, you know? 
And such were the conditions. We just didn't have enough. And then luckily, right, the Marines, we had this guy called Gunny Chavez, who was an absolute legend. And uh, mustachioed, really intense, didn't talk. And he was an IED disposal gunnery sergeant in their company that was with us. And he saved our bacon as well. Because like, if we didn't have him, we would have just been completely swamped, you know? And he would come out. So like when I talk about we found that anti-section mine, he would come out and, you know, he'd be down with us within 45 minutes and he'd stay there and he'd defuse it, you know? I learned the hard way, you know, you, you never ask for an update. It all goes very quiet while they're there dealing with this. And um, you never ever ask for an update, even as the officer, to know how it's going because they're just concentrating. And what we saw by the end of the tour in terms of the threat migration was, yeah, suicide bombers, chicken switch, which is like they send in suicide bombers, but they have a chicken switch. If the guy chickens out, they'll detonate it for him with an RC, you know. Then we moved to really low content metal or no metal pressure plates so our things couldn't detect them. And the last one, because our IED team, Gunny Chavez, was so effective, the last one was what they call a collapsing circuit IED, which is when, it's kind of from the James Bond one, which, which wire do I break, you know? When you mess around and you normally, I think, you take out the charge first, you know? I'm not an expert on this though, so don't try it at home. No, I mean, hopefully that advice goes without saying on this podcast, but yeah, don't try that at home. Hi, I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, we talk about everything from sex to spying, wardrobes to witch trials. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When the ID team go to cut the wire, once the circuit is disconnected, it explodes. And that is really scary and I was there with Gunny Chavez when he came back and he went they're trying to kill me now and he, he said I nearly went and ah oh, it's just the same old device I've seen a hundred of these so far this tour I'll just do this and then he went he said in my mind just do your drills do your drills and he did it correctly and he came back white as a ghost and you're like Pfft. and let's think about that for a second because if the Taliban were able to take out someone as highly trained and as talented as him, then you're really knocking back your efforts and your ability to move quickly away from that area. You're going to be another team that's stuck for 24 hours or even longer as you're trying to bring more people who are trained in bomb disposal, in trained in taking out these IEDs. So if they can take out that highly trained single point of failure, I guess, for you guys, then they're going to get steps closer to victory. Oh, completely. And if you look, you know, the British casualties are some amazing guys, these ID disposal officers like Olaf Schmidt and there's another one who I've forgotten his name, double George Crosswinner before he was killed. You know, tragic. But these guys were, I'd imagine, you know, they were kind of the tip of the spear, really, in that field. And um, exhaustion. You know, imagine going out and doing, I don't know, like from location to location via helicopter, 40 degree heat, the threat of being ambushed. At any point on that, you know, when they get into the location, getting a brief off the commander, going over to the IED, disposing it in as best you can, back on the chopper, off to the next location. And it was the sheer quantity that they're dealing with. And am I right in thinking that there was also a gendered element to this threat? Because when it comes down to thinking you know who the suicide bombers are, you think that it's going to be men, members of the Taliban, who are, you know, giving their lives to the cause. But once you got wise to that and you're able to check people and vet people and search them as you went through, is it true that there was a change towards some women being forced or used as suicide bombers in that environment? We didn't have women per se, but the intelligence was telling us that there were men dressed in burqas. In Helmandi society, you know, you don't go searching women in burqas. So again, adapt. So the ID was more than just a kind of kinetic explosive weapon. It really was a psychological weapon, wasn't it, Paddy? Well, it became that, yeah. How much that was their initial strategy. I think it was kind of a weapon of the week. It started off, but it just caused us a lot of dramas on that scale. You know, the tours after us were worse. We could see it coming. We were like, at the end of that tour, we were like, God, this is so bad now. And kind of like, what are we doing? But the military term was fixed. You were just stuck there. And it was like patrol to IED was the joke. You know what I mean? His patrol to an ID, it either went off or you diffused it. And then you came back in. And sure, how many did they lay that the next night, you know? And there, it wasn't just us, it was, they were killing loads of Afghans, security forces. Like, we, I had one go off and, in front of my eyes, and, and your drills are like... You can see this thing just get completely blown up. You're only, like, 100 metres away from it, across this area, and you're like, we can't run to them. Do not run. Do not run. Do not, you know, that's all you're telling to the lads. Do not run. Clear to this. Clear to it. Clear to it. Clear to it. And sure, it takes you like what? Even in that thing, it takes like 10 minutes to get there. 
and those 10 minutes can be vital in terms of saving lives and stuff so yeah it was more than a psychological weapon I'd say it was a very effective weapon and despite sort of amazing technological advances and great effort like by the joint IED disposable organisation I don't know how much they cracked it you know and how much you could crack it unless you stopped fertiliser which is farmers need in, in Afghan society unless you literally went right we're closing the border with Pakistan around there's no fertiliser coming in I don't know how you just to try and help us understand the environment you were working in, if I remember from me and you discussing this so many times over the years, geography wasn't on your side particularly either because one thing about Sangin was that you were almost operating in three or four different geographical environments at one time. Can you explain what it was like in terms of the geography of Sangin and how that also impacted the IED's potency? Yeah, I can. Yeah, good question. So the base was just at the edge of town, located that way, so it wasn't right in the centre and a bit more defendable. And then if you went out one way, you know, you kind of came to an urban environment, you know, like a town, underpopulated for the size of it because of the nature of the conflict there, but still populated. And, and you could pop out on a Thursday or a Friday, I can't remember what day it was, and it'd be really bustling with a market and you're just teeming with life. And you're there like all these threats in your head and life's just going on. You're trying to keep people away from you. Suicide bombers thinking about that, IEDs everywhere. And then you could emerge out of that from a few hundred metres and you'd be into kind of almost desert, you know which is much safer in one way because everything's at a distance and you can see. And they're unlikely to put as many IDs really in the desert areas. And then you could go, the other area was really like a mishmash quilt of irrigated fields, very lush and ditches, a little bit like the paddy fields of Vietnam, but not quite as wet, a bit more trees and stuff. And that was really where they liked to put them, you know. They really liked to put them on the pathways and in the small bridges, the little crossing points. And you're there as a patrol commander, you wanted to win over the locals, so you don't want to walk through people's crops, be they wheat or pomegranate or poppy even, you know. But you have to, because you go on these paths, you're going to get blown up. And I remember, you know, a farmer coming out and shouting at me, you know, what are you doing walking through my field? And I was like, well, you know, tell us where the IEDs are and we won't. He just said, I'm not going to tell you where they are because the Taliban will kill me. And these aren't short crops either. I mean, are you walking through crops at overhead height here? Can you see who's coming towards you? Are you coming across Taliban patrols? Absolutely. Like, so the poppy would grow quite high, depending before, yeah, it would grow quite... The biggest one was the corn, you know, because it's so hot over there and well irrigated with the channels that they've managed to dig in them. So it just shoots up, the, and that you'd go away for a couple of weeks, you'd come back and the corn would just be like well above head height. And you know, corn is also quite a wide plant stalk you know with all the leaves on it so we'd be patrolling through there and pockets of heat and all coming up at you and your visibility is like two or three meters and so you had to again change your tactics change your weapons what we needed actually for the point man because people would bump into taliban you know and there's stories of people bumping into taliban and the guys the taliban being drug addled you know off their face and the first few rounds just doing absolutely nothing to them so yeah this is fairly serious soldier and if you think about it the point man would have their safety catch off and they'd have on fully automatic and the person behind them would usually be the section commander and he'd have his bayonet fixed so that's the kind of seriousness and then we started to switch because the 556 five, bullets weren't you know lethal enough really at that a really close range a 556 five, is going at so fast it's actually quite small it can just go straight through you and not cause you know that amount of damage so then there was a requirement to change it we started using shotguns but that was the year after us you know so so we're talking about the threat of 
short range. I mean, if you've got a shotgun, this is short range stuff, but also the threat of hand to hand fighting. How many militaries still train to fix their bayonets, Paddy? Well, we did, yeah. That's the job of the infantry. As far as I know, British military are one of the few that still does. And it tells you the kind of conflict which we may well have known we were going in for there. When you think about bayonet fighting, you'll think about maybe going over the top of the trenches at the Somme or moving through. You don't think about Afghanistan. It just shows you the high intensity alongside the IEDs that that geography created for you in that theatre. And that, I think, is the reason why Sangin has gone down in the history of the war in Afghanistan as being, well, one of the hottest places to be during that period. Yeah, it was certainly very, very lethal for our time, you know. And the tour that came after us, those guys from the rifles, you know, took a lot. And the Marines, the third, fifth that we were talking about earlier, you know, the Dark Horse had a hell of a lot of casualties from IEDs. But there were, you know, there's military crosses awarded for bayonet charges. There was one in my unit, there's one in the Anglians as well. And that's just the nature of the reality of it. In fact, you know, that part, right, the bayonet charge training for it, you know, the, the bayonet is the sign of the infantry training school in Brecon, you know. That is what you're oriented around. This is what it is. At the tip of the spear, this is what it is. The infantry mission. And so the infantry mission is to close with and kill the enemy in all weather conditions, in all terrains, by day or by night. You know, when I was, that was what it was. And that's fairly serious. We will do this anywhere and at any time in any place. So the bayonet itself is, and I think that's been the case since, you know, at least the Second World War. They realise it's a very potent, unifying symbol about we mean business. So I would say that's a bit more kind of imbued in the spirit of it. What was actually a sort of juxtaposition against that is the IED, where they're nowhere. Like, they're everywhere and they're nowhere. And where is the person doing this to us? And we can't charge them with our bayonets. And they say, they say nowadays that warfare is getting ever more remote, ever more disconnected from the enemy. You've got, on one side, the spread of drones and their pinpoint precision strikes, or so-called pinpoint precision, that continue to be used in Afghanistan to, well, just very recently during the withdrawal. And then on the other side, you've almost got the asymmetric warfare version of the drone, which is the IED. You know, you're able to detonate an explosive via remote control against your enemy and, and watch that happen. So both sides are getting further and further apart. And we say this is something that is continuing in warfare today as a trend. You look at the next generation of IED, I guess, and you start to see how ISIS, during their fight, during Operation Inherent Resolve, were using explosives fixed inside drones to make the IED fly. So you had the threat of those being fixed to telegraph poles and in trees, but the troops that came after you started to have IEDs being flown at them. So this is more the contemporary state of warfare, and there doesn't seem anything so, well, doesn't seem like it feels so remote when you've got an IED being flown at you and at your troops. No, and I think in some ways... It's a big juxtaposition. I get the remote part of it and all, but Jesus, it's not remote if you're at the end of his drone strike, are you? You know, people talk about like shadow war and disappearing violence. And you're like, even if you're living in the sort of Pakistani tribal areas, it's not remote when you get hit by a hellfire missile. It's pretty present, you know? So yes, the way it's managed is, but I think there needs to be a bit of caution about the reality on the ground. I remember coming back, so I, I got extracted from sang in about six weeks early because I had to promote to do a captain's course and coming back and doing the captain's course was very weird you know you're on the front line in a week you're back in like Wilshire still checking under bollards and manholes and stuff like that and a Royal Air Force guy came in to give us the brief about the weapons capabilities that they could deliver onto a target 
and it was all the videos, you know, those black and white videos, boom, and, and it was like, he was so blasé, it's like, and he gets the good news. And you're like, but, you know, dude, we go, yes, I'm glad you had those munitions, because they saved us sometimes, yeah? But we would go in after a 500 pound bomb is being dropped on the target, and it's, again, it's not remote, it's pretty present what you're seeing. A lot of it's to do with distance, and I think this analysis sort of fits in one way if you're distant from it, you know? So, yes, it seems remote, and look, it's a way of managing conflicts, there's obviously something in it, but as you say, there is this kind of immediacy, big immediacy to it too. And there's one other interesting thing about it, is that, like, how does all this remote stuff fit? Look at Mosul, look at Search. Look at these urban battlefields that, you know, Tony King is talking about how conflicts are coalescing into really urbanized areas. This idea of kind of bloodless, as we were, you know, bloodless warfare. You look at those conflicts, like they're incredibly bloody. The amount of people that are dying. So there's certainly a juxtaposition going on there between a more sanitized version and actual the reality of it. I think President Obama said that drones are part of a just war, a war waged proportionately. Simply put, they save lives. And then we had Amos Fox, who's a major in the US Army, a tank man on the podcast a few weeks ago. And he was saying about the siege of Mosul and how you had the drone strikes on the buildings as ISIS moved through. And he almost called it or referred to it as like a slow motion Dresden because you just had the destruction of entire blocks one by one as ISIS moved around the cities. And the end result is the same. It's a mass destruction of an entire town. Yeah, exactly. The way I think about it is we're going to end up with this kind of slightly two-speed warfare potentially, you know, between very high-tempo, remote, network-enabled tech and then when that doesn't work, because it won't work, because there are things friction will get in the way, this sort of low-temple attritional fight. And of course they ran out of precision missiles, so you had to move to dumb bombs anyway. Paddy, I feel like we're going to keep talking about this. We can talk about this for many more hours, and we're going to get you back on the podcast to do exactly that. But before you go, I'm going to say that people should go out and they should buy Call Sign Hades, which was your book that you wrote just after you finished serving in Sangin, in Afghanistan. It is the best book I have read written by a soldier on that conflict during that period, and I really recommend that people go out and buy it to get a flavour of what the war was like. Paddy, thank you so much for coming on the Warfare Podcast. Absolute pleasure, and great to chat as usual, James. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.